Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This week, our guest is Dr. Susan Friedman. This is episode 152, but then who's counting? We're still celebrating reaching the milestone of our 150th episode. Susan joined us for the celebration, but she turned the tables on us. She's the one asking the questions. At least that's how it started out. And then we all started asking questions. Last week, Susan shared with us three simple questions that she uses to help her clients solve their animal training puzzles. And this week, we're going to have a change of topic. We're going to take a very deep dive into the ABCs of training. You know, this little unit, and I know it's not just an independent unit, but just this little ABC, I mean, how much fun we've had just munching at it. And it's not over for so many years, you know, it's like, and we hear it a different way and we find it that, that it's very useful to hear it in another way. And it builds because it's always, everything is kind of connected, but it's just, um, you know, just for me today, how would I train it when I see something I don't like? I like that. It can be, it can really open up a lot of information about what you've been inadvertently doing. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. You know, your point about those ABCs, I'm feeling some frustration around that we've all been doing this for 20 years or longer, 45 if you include my kids stuff and my university teaching, maybe closer to that for you, Alex and Dominique, you said 10 or 15 years. And one of the things that I'm learning is how you put it out there and people don't pick it up after 20 years because they're just simply looking for something new. That one of the biggest reinforcers for people is novelty for humans is novelty. And this has been a frustration of of behavior analysts for 80 years. You know, when we figured out really great ways to teach academics to children or children with autism um, to be independent with precision teaching or direct instruction and teachers just don't hold on to it for the long run because there comes a point where people just start to look for something new. Yeah, neuroscience is the new sexy thing. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's funny because maybe it's because I'm newer to this than you guys are, but for me, it's always new. There's always something new that I'm learning about these ABCs. You know, like what you just said, well, that, we've learned, that we've learned that the cue is not just the cue, but is the whole context. Right. This is something new for me and that I've learned in the past maybe three, four years. And it's so deep, you know, and it's this is how you get good because you're deepening and you're understanding the nuances And that's where you start to see your little mistakes and why this strategy is, you can make it better. There's no other way than to just deepen, deepen, deepen. So getting 
maybe there's something to get out of the newest thing. But for me, there's always a new thing in our little just with our science. Cool. Yeah, yeah, just with our science. That's very <laughs> insightful. And that actually makes me feel better. I think what is happening is we need to do a better job. I need to do a better job of revealing those new th things within the parameters of the science. I think people, you know, they learn the ABCs as though it's some kind of magic wand and they don't keep getting deeper and deeper. There's this behavior of, let's see, I haven't said any of this aloud yet. I've just been chewing on it myself. There's uh, this pattern that I see now uh, more clearly in my career where people will learn something new and it's the new hot thing. And then rather than keep expanding from that nucleus, they drop it. And part of their process of finding the next new thing is to tear down the old thing. Mm -hmm. So for, I can give you an example um, that might be helpful. Uh, so Joe Lang has been talking this year about nonlinear contingency analysis as a comparison to what we might call linear contingency analysis, one ABC. And he points out the great work Gold Diamond did in his clinical work, his clinical application of the ABCs is to say, asking what's the function, what's the outcome that maintains the behavior and what's the antecedent, what signals the behavior isn't enough to help some person in need, in need of clinical help to figure out why they're behaving in these ways that are problematic for them, such that they went to a therapist for help, a behavioral therapist for help, that we also need to expand our ABCs beyond the one, what's the function, what's the signal, and ask, what do you get? What's the outcome? If you don't do the problem behavior, let's mm -hmm. say you're a cutter, okay. Okay. you're cutting, think of the, the teens that engage in that or a million other problem behaviors. You're always late for work and now your job might be, um, you might lose your job. So it can go from extreme to less extreme, but you have a, pro a problem pattern of behavior and you've gone for help. It's not enough to just say, what's the signal for cutting and what's the outcome you get? That's important. But we can also get more information that will help you if we ask, and what do you lose if you don't come late to work? Mm -hmm. And what do you gain if you come on time? All of these different sort of um, like uh, we're going to build out our model um, from one ABC, we're going to then start appending the other ABCs of asking all the other facets around a contingency. And that really will help people understand why they aren't doing it right, why they persist in doing it. I'll put it in air quotes, wrong, give it a, a name, the undesirable way, the hurtful way, whatever, wrong. And how we might need to support the environments to make sure you do get something of value, something that motivates coming on time, or instead of cutting uh, writing a poem to express the depths of despair, to diffuse the stress and so forth and so on. 
So that's beautiful. And there's so much to learn. And I had been reading carefully and last year spent more time texting, uh, emailing Joe. He's such a generous mentor saying, but what do you mean by that? Do you mean this? Do you mean that? And he helped kind of guide my, my plane in on understanding uh, nonlinear contingency analysis better. At no point does it that you drop the ABCs. Mm, no. And so what I'm seeing on Facebook kind of here and there, little sparks here and there is people saying, oh yeah, the ABCs are wrong. Okay. Or the hierarchy's wrong. Or choice and control is just a fashion statement. Mm. I've got quite a long list now of these. In order to go to the depth, I somehow have to dismantle the wall entirely. Mm-mm. So it's a lack of understanding how these are sprouts yeah that enrich our model they don't take away from the seed or the beginner level right some days it's it's disturbing and other days it's just like wow human behavior and novelty it's amazing Mm. yeah so have you experienced any of those things that you, you have learned and expanded on that you've seen people say, oh, well, then that original seed planted is wrong. Let's pull that out of the ground. Well, I don't know if it's because I'm the, the people that I'm that I'm drawing from, that I'm learning from. There has not been as I deepen my knowledge, there has been no contradiction on the contrary. It has really enriched my understanding. It has, and it has explained why certain things that I thought I was applying correctly were not getting me the results that I wanted. So it, for me, it, there's been no contradiction. There's been only deepening, deepening, deepening. And in a way it, it has, it shows how solid really these basic principles are because you keep it's such a strong foundation and you keep like you said I like this image of the sprouting but I maybe if maybe it's because you know there was also a point where I decided that I picked my mentors and teachers because there's a lot of information on the internet mm-hmm. and I I was finding that I was spending time sometimes it, it was interesting to hear what people had to say, but there's not enough time. So I wanted to have sources that I could really rely on. And maybe that's why I may not have been exposed to what you're describing as much. Because I pick, you know, there's about, there are a few mentors and teachers that I stick with. And up to now, I've been very satisfied with what I've learned. What about you, Alex? Have you found this, that novelty, people are kind of dismissing what they learn for the new hot topic? It, it makes me think of clinic hoppers. Yeah. You know, somebody goes to a, a, a different clinic every other weekend, or they've gone to six conferences in a row. and and Or diets, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's, it's like they, they're taking on a lot of information, which is sounds like a good thing, but there has to be time to really digest, 
to explore, to investigate, to test those ideas that you are being exposed to. So you know, that lovely expression, go to horse people for opinions and horses for answers. Use it often, Alex. Yeah, I love that. And I, it's not original to me, but I definitely use it a lot. And you know, you go to a clinic and then it's, well, let me go back and explore these ideas. And the first expert, the first question for me has to be, does this set well with my core basic ethics? Because, you know, I can go to a clinic and watch somebody work a horse and see some very skillful handling and go away and never make use of anything that I saw because it is in opposition to core basic ethics. You know, if they're using an escalating of pressure and they are treating the horse like a thing and, you know, it's like, well, that was, that was interesting, but I'm not going to take it on board. And uh, so I think you having a real strong connection to your core, what guides you is important. And I think a lot of, I know a lot of people that I encounter don't have that. Mm. They've never really given it thought. And so they, uh, they're in that stream being pushed along by whoever is shouting the loudest, whoever sounds like right. the, the next great expert. I remember, right. so uh, in the, recently we did a podcast, two episodes with Anita Schnee, who's a Feldenkrais practitioner. And I love the Feldenkrais work. And in, the, in that work, Anita is not telling us what muscles we're using. She's not giving us the, the medical name of the muscles and the bones and so on. And it is not, it's not part of how you explore that work. But I remember watching somebody who was teaching Tai Chi to horse people. And he was talking about which muscle by name and, and everybody was going, oh, he's such an expert because he can name the muscles. And so their cultural training was to immediately shift over and go, you're the expert. Okay. You know, so it's how do, I, how do we identify who to listen to? And it's not just who has the biggest voice or uses the longest words mm -hmm. or says it with enough, you know, it's the, the, the hunting of the snark. Mm -hmm. uh, what I tell you three times is true. You know, if I say it often enough, it must be true. The repetition. So the, yeah. 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 So I think when you're looking at work, it's have I explored it enough to understand it? And what I found is that when you, when you have a really solid training system, that you will find that the, the people that you admire and gravitate to and listen to, that we're basically all saying the same thing. You know, we're coming up with similar solutions. When I think about 
some of the work that Kay presents, Kay Lawrence presents, or Michelle Puglio, or you know, some of these Ken Ramirez and so on, that we're not contradicting one another. Mm -hmm. And and so when you encounter when I look at Michelle's work, I don't have to say, well, that part's all wrong. Right. I can say, oh, that's really clever. Right. That's really smart. As you would expect of people who are deriving their practice from a science. Yes. You know, you would not expect five different astrophysicists to describe gravity wildly different from one another, or five different heart surgeons to describe the heart wildly different from another. But behavior hasn't quite gotten that status yet. It's still very much wide open to um, people coming up with, you know, their own their own stories about it. So you get, I, I need to do a correction, or I need to do for that particular German Shepherd, or I need to do a, a non-linear contingency analysis. <laughs> it's no longer enough to say that giraffe is stepping off the block because you're inadvertently reinforcing the step off to come back again, you know? Yeah. It, and I think what makes this especially interesting for me is that it isn't always the loudest expert or pseudo expert or self-appointed expert. It's when bona fide experts say something. So Joe lays down nonlinear contingency analysis. And what happens is this, as that washes up to shore, it's threatening to take down the castles that we've just built, you know? Yes. Which was not his intention. That's the interesting twist for me. Mm. Another, another example, maybe it'll ring some bells for your experiences as well. I listened to a podcast by the wonderful Henry Schlinger, Hank Schlinger, again, a, a great behavior analyst. I think I use the word great when it's people who dare who, who pick up the dare to think about our science in new ways, you know, bring expansions, sprouts to us. And um, he presented for an hour and a half on how uh, consequences, reinforcers don't strengthen behavior. What they, Silence. Right, right. Silence. I mean, it's, it's so great for anybody who likes drama and attention. You just lay that down at a faculty meeting and <laughs> watch people, right? No, no, no. Reinforcers don't strengthen behavior. So I'm sitting there listening. Oh, this should, this should be really great. He goes on to explain why it's circular. How do you know it's a reinforcer? It strengthened behavior. Why did it strengthen behavior? Because it's a reinforcer. And that's an unfortunate, we can do better. That's an unfortunate thing when you've got a circularity in your explanations. And what he's worked out is a great way of explaining that consequences change the evocative value of the cue. Reinforcers strengthen the cue's ability to evoke the behavior. That's what's being strengthened is the cue's ability to okay. land the sit, land the trot, okay. land the station. And it's, be it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, in a way, it's great because it, it includes, because sometimes we were too much focusing on just consequence behavior and forgetting yeah. all the first part. And what he's saying is that 
it's that first part that is strengthening the behavior in a way. Yeah, I mean, he well, it's part of it. By saying it in a very provocative way, he got our attention. And he also gave us a more testable hypothesis because we can test with latency, discretionary effort, consistency. So how would you do that? So instead of saying, how do you test that instead of saying it's the consequence that reinforces the behavior, now you're saying the consequence is changing the evocative the, what the cue is evoking. The strength of the cues, yeah. The cue to evoke the behavior you signal. But the cue to evoke the behavior you signal, but if there were no concept, you have to speak more of all this. So just say it once more though, how he says it. Say, say it once more, okay. Is to say that the, the function of a reinforcer is not in strengthening behavior that it follows in the future because it can't strengthen behavior that's already occurred. So there are all these little, all of these little piranha that are biting our ankles when you actually look in great detail at our standard sort of beginner intermediate level definitions, you know, which are in about 550 different textbooks, right? And there'll be a punchline here from Chini right, that, right, is, right, that right. I will enjoy sharing and giving to you as he gave to me. So what he's saying is that the, the function of the food treat for the go-to-place behavior, go-to-mat behavior, is not to strengthen the go-to-mat behavior. It is to strengthen the cue go-to-mat, the cue's ability to evoke the go-to-mat behavior. So chew on it, sit on it. We can talk more about it another time if you want. I, I would need to review his notes and really, you know, I followed uh, his rationale. He's just a very, he's really a novel thinker. Why would you want, why would you want to go to another science when this is so much fun? I know, I know. And he's really a great source, like Joe is a great source of new ways to look at what we know. But the punchline I wanted to share with you as it pertains to our discussion, why do people have to abandon the foundation instead of seeing that the new stuff is really, like you're mm -hmm. describing, Dominique, a sprout from that foundation, is when I was telling this to Chini at dinner last week, you know, he's 86 or something. So he's seen it all. He's heard it all. He's lost patience with it, all of it. And he, he, he rolls his eyes. At which I do have captured on video. It's hilarious. For perpetuity now, I've captured what it looks like for him to look at me in great annoyance. And he says to me, how will that change what you do? And that would be the oh, fourth yeah. question of, of, for assembling. How would you train the problem mm. behavior? Mm. Uh, what is reinforcing? What is the signal? Would be how does anything new change what you do? And I need to do more on this, maybe have a Behavior Works merch poster on this, you know, is that as we take on all the beautiful and delicious sprouts that come from the origin seed, is to always remind ourselves it can be delicious and not necessarily change what we do. So would it change mm -hmm. how I teach beginners? 
maybe not. Would I bring it to you too? Because it's delicious and may give us an expanded reverence for the relationship between antecedents and consequences, that, that stimulus-stimulus relation. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you I have. <laughs> saved it for you. You've opened and that also channel. to share with you another great voice, <laughs> mm. uh, a novel thinker who's been in the field a long time and who's an excellent teacher of these new ways of looking, or not new, but new to us. So reinforce means to strengthen. If I look it up in the dictionary, which is often my first go-to. Mine too. Mm -hmm. So look it up in the dictionary. So uh, reinforce means to strengthen. So what we generally talk about is we want to strengthen a particular behavior. That's now we right. Have to think about what does strengthen mean. So the dog, you use the example of the dog going to the mat, right? A horse going to a mat, or we have uh, grown-ups are talking where we want the horse to stand in stillness with his nose evenly between his his shoulders at a particular height. So he's saying the carrot is strengthening when you put your two hands on your core in the middle of your, on your, your, how do you say the, le nombril? Torso. Well, the, on your torso. So it's, it, uh, it's strengthening that gesture, evoking going to the mat. But now the behavior is going to evolve. So it's going to change over time. So does strengthening the behavior relate to this change in the behavior over time? But sometimes the cues don't change. Well, it's the just cues may change too. So cues, cues and sometimes the behavior doesn't cues, change. Cues and behavior, cues and behavior yeah. tend to evolve together. But because he's saying it's strengthening the ability of the cue to evoke the behavior. Let's say the cue doesn't evolve because you don't want it to evolve. You always want your two hands on your torso to mean uh, we're doing grown-ups are talking. Oh, but cues are going to evolve whether you want them to or not. Because maybe you've always taught in the morning. And so part of the cue is that the sun is on the right side of the building instead of the left side of the building. So now you work in the afternoon and you put your two hands on your torso and your horse looks like looks at you like you have two heads and there's no clue what you're talking about. There's a lot of roads for us to go down here. Yeah, and the bottom line is even with nonlinear contingency analysis or even with understanding the difference between emotions and emotional behavior and understanding that the hierarchy is meant to ask yourself the important question, but can I do this with positive reinforcement instead of negative reinforcement? Can I? And then I'll decide if I should. You know, all of those things that we can see bits of sparks of people getting bored, wanting something new to rock their world, doesn't, shouldn't be changing the core of what we do. And where I got here was, besides that it's on my mind, and as always, you arrange the environment for such easy conversation of authentic, you know, being here with you. So I appreciate you both for that. But Alex, when you said something about, 
Oh, it just, it just slipped my mind, but something that you said brought it to mind, which is uh, your core ethical values. You know, you interpret everything that's new or an expansion or a deepening or a widening or change of hue against your core values. You said ethics. I would, I say, I find the word values to be very evocative of what we're talking about as well, your core values. And when I hear these new things, and I remember Cheney saying to me (laughs) with exasperation, but does that change what you do when you teach people at zoos and you work with people training dogs and you teach LLA or whatever you're doing? Um, And most often it does not. It enriches my understanding of how behavior works, but it may not enrich how I deliver starting with the origin seed. So it's another one of those, um, if we could help people consider before you abandon some of the foundational stuff that we've been teaching, like the cue emerges from the behavior, behavior is always evolving. These are core understandings. And if we could teach people that a good way to handle the new shiny stuff the neuro stuff or whatever, is to ask yourself, it's interesting, it's delicious, partake, enjoy, expand, but does it change what you're going to do with that horse or with that owner you're teaching of that horse? That would be a great thing, I think. Because there's some kind of badge of courage saying, oh, I'm beyond the ABCs. And I'm like, wow, what? where is that going to go? Or the hierarchy's wrong choice and control is a fashion state people should see your face (laughs) (laughs) it took us 25 years which is about the shelf life of a new thought right of a new step to freedom is about 25 years and then people want something new that makes me think of when i was writing the first book like you're training for your horse what i wanted was to give people a launching point. I wanted to give them uh, an entry point into the into using clicker training, positive reinforcement with their horses that we had tested, that I knew worked, that was solid, and that had a lot of safety measures built into it. And that if you if you built a good solid foundation that absolutely you could go off and explore in many, 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 many different directions. And I encouraged people to do that. I said, we are all pioneers in this. And we were, because it was early days. When I wrote that book, we were, it was very early right. days in clicker training. So, you know, and I would say to them, we're all pioneers in this. Here's a good, solid starting point and go off and explore. What I would see, and, and it always felt like a foot race, is that sometimes people would go off and explore without mm-hmm. building a solid foundation. And so when they got into trouble, it was like they were in a swamp neck deep in quicksand. Absolutely. They had nothing, they had mm-hmm. nothing solid to go back to. You know, we have something solid in the ABCs. You get into a little bit of trouble with an animal, you've got, you've got something solid that you can go back to. Right. You can pull yourself out of the quicksand. And yeah, 
when you throw away, when you say, oh, no, no, I don't need all of that. This, this, you know, we'll, the, it's the new whatever, the new shiny bobble is going to explain all of that. Well, you know, there are times when the new shiny bobble is, is the one we need to be looking at. You know, the, the earth does revolve around the sun, not the other way around. The, the earth is, is round, not flat. Uh, you know, there are times when the new shiny idea is, is a good shiny idea. Uh, let's not throw, let's not throw out things that are working and that are solid just because there's a new shiny idea that's tempting. I think for me too, one of the perspective that you gave us, Susan, right. in your course, in your LLA course, you talk about this at the beginning, uh, was the perspective of the uh, sister science. That was very helpful for me because, you know, you want to know yes, where right. where is this thing, the behavior science in all things, you know, in all, and to have that suggestion that, okay, so this is one lens, one way to approach it. And this is the one I picked because it's, the, it's very useful, very actionable for me. We're studying behaviors and this is what I, and I'm not yeah. working with people, I'm working with animals. And so that perspective to know that it's not to say that neuroscience is bad, not, not useful. It's just for me, I picked this, the behavior science, and I'm going to deepen my knowledge so I can use this science well. And yeah, I know there are other things going on and some other people will deepening their understanding of those sciences. But for me, I and I also remember that you once said to me, you know, it's amazing that behavior science with just the foundation, you can solve 90% or 95% of the problems an animal will throw at you. And I thought, okay, I can do that because right. I'm not a behavior analyst myself. I have my life. And I think if I have a good foundation and I keep building on it, I can solve a lot of what my animals will show me. Absolutely. You can improve any situation yeah, so to some degree. In a way, for me, when I got that perspective of the science sister, I felt like, okay, we all know if you want to be good at something, you need to focus. You need to have some focus. Otherwise, you're just going to be all over the place and you will be good at nothing. And so I know in terms of my own use of time, in terms of the results I want to get, for me, and I've invested a lot of time already in, in behavior science, and it has proved so many times, it makes so much sense to me that, you know, for sure, I want to continue to deepen and I want to be, you know, because things, the way things have changed over the past 20 years, I've heard Alex talk about it, I've heard you and Ken talk about it. There are new ways to talk about things that are more useful now than they were 20 yes. years ago. So it's good to keep that open mind and stay right. on the edge of things, but it's different from throwing it away. It is different. And it, recognizing that you can start at that level with people who have that foundation, but it would be a dissemination mistake to start at that level yeah, yeah, with people who don't yet have that foundation. And that and that worries me a bit too. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. You know, one of the things I always, I, I've said that to Alex, is when she, when she teaches, 
and like a learner is making 35 mistakes, her restraint, you know, how she can stay calm and just pick the one thing she she picks one thing she's How? going to work on and progress on that and then get to the next one and i'm watching and i'm like oh my god i can't watch this i'm getting like i i that restraint is what makes a good teacher you know that they don't throw everything at the student you have this this and that and that and and it right. makes for a very pleasant experience for their learner. And so I understand if you throw something at that right. level that the person is not ready to uh, understand and receive, yeah, it's a mistake. Receive. But the right. information. Right. And there are many examples, many, many examples. Um, probably the one clearest to me is uh, Pavlovian conditioning versus operant learning. You know, I never think about the dichotomy. It does not inform what I do at all. What does inform what I do are procedures. So I may think about stimulus-stimulus pairing. I may think about ABCs, and I may pick one approach versus another, but I never think of it as, you know, reflexes and Pavlov versus voluntary behavior and and Skinner, and the two are a dichotomy. And yet, when I teach the beginning university course, I always teach that distinction because my rationale is that uh, it'll, it helps students see what's in front of them, the reflexive responses to antecedents versus the voluntary responses to discriminative stimuli. And I trust that if I can keep them as students long enough, I can bring them first the dichotomy and then slowly teach them why for my work, the two have merged as just uh, different tools in a toolbox procedurally and not different in terms of sciences or, you know, because they're, they're so enmeshed. So that's, that's such an example. And whether or not these new things will be useful for animal work is another layer that I wanted to share. I, I did speak with Joe, um, Joe Lang, when we started, when I started catching up, running after his car, his race car, um, about a nonlinear contingency analysis, um, because Gold Diamond's work was only very, I barely knew about him. It was so, I knew the name and not the content. content. Um, when I was studying and coming up with my early mentors. So it is catching up for me. But as I said to him, I understand it now. I've got your thumbs up on my understanding when I sent in self-tests, you know, checks for with you. Um, but whether or not it's going to be useful for the animal work mm. that we do, that's the work ahead. So we'll push up our sleeves and we'll take a really good look at when might asking those nonlinear ABC questions uh, really inform uh, be beginner dog trainer or beginner hyena trainer how to teach an injection behavior or not. I can see its value with clinical mm -hmm. work with humans, absolutely. And that the ABCs would be too paltry to understand the many forces that are producing problem behavior. So that's the other thing to say is, you know, not everything that is intriguing is 
I guess it's just mm-hmm. another way of saying how will it change what you do? Not everything that's new and intriguing is necessarily relevant mm-hmm. to the specific animal training we're doing. It may, it may. On yeah. the other hand, yeah. it may be, it may be. Alex knows um, from my parenting um, presentation, which I think you attended when I yeah. taught it. Yeah. Yes. And because I often have occasion to say this, one of the things that I don't like about I don't give it a name, right? Old school behavior analysis, just for for lack of a better term, is with humans is it's very transactional nature. I have what you want. If you do what I want, I'll give you what I have. That super transactional, like it's a business transaction with kids is something that I have really developed uh, much softer, much more negotiating, much more positive reinforcement oriented way of interacting with children. Well, what's the difference? Is it the difference? Is it that you, that it's a two-way conversation? What's the difference? Because you know what you've just described? I mean, the words may be harsh, but that, that would pretty much, you know, describe positive reinforcement. I think Susan has just opened up another rabbit hole for us to go down. So this is a great place to stop. Susan has given us a lot to chew on, lots to think about. Next week, we'll see how she responds to Dominique's question about describing positive reinforcement training in such a transactional, and many would say coercive way. Susan has given us a great cliffhanger, and I'm going to make you wait until next time to find out what she says. I'll just end with a reminder about the virtual clinics. I'm about to start another virtual clinic in a couple days. This is one that I've really been looking forward to for a long time. The topic is connecting the dots from horse hugs to riding. Michaela Hempen will be joining me to teach this one. We're both really excited by this clinic. We want to connect the dots between the core foundation lessons, groundwork, lateral flexions, and then on into riding, but not just riding. We're looking at the classical dressage. How do all the pieces that we look at, all the details that I fuss and explore and really stress, how do all of those pieces connect to lead to what, when we're all done, Someone would look at it and say, oh, what a beautiful shoulder in. What a beautiful half pass. What a beautiful horse. I wish my horse looked like that. It's going to be a fun clinic. All the horse spots are taken. But in all of these clinics, there's usually room for one more participant. So if you're interested, just send me an email and I'll see if we've got any room left. This is a great time to remind you that there are more clinics on the schedule going into the fall. August 19 through 22nd, I'll be teaching a clinic on managing energy and emotions. The subtitle is The Goldilocks Effect, Getting to Just Right. This clinic is set up for those of you who are in Australia and New Zealand, which also means that it's perfect for everyone who's on the other side of the world in North America. So for me, the start time will be 6 p.m. Eastern time 
on the day before. So the dates are listed as August 19 through 22nd, but for me that means it starts on August 18, the Thursday, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And that means that it's the following morning in Australia. So it starts on the morning of the 19th in Australia. This is a clinic that very much draws on the work that's been emerging from Science Camp. We're going to be looking at AB reversals. If you're not sure what that is, then this is absolutely a great clinic to attend. But we're going to be looking at how the single subject design that's been developed in the field of, of behavioral analysis, how we can pull that out of the laboratory and use it in our real world training to really help us understand what's going on with our horses. And of course, speaking of science camp, we have science camp coming up on Labor Day weekend. Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz and Mary Hunter and Michaela Hempen and I had a meeting not too long ago about what we're going to cover, and I'm just super excited by this year's science camp. There's going to be so much new material. Jesus is going to be introducing some topics, some concepts that we just haven't been talking about in animal training. And then going into the fall, there are several other clinics. I think there's one on rope handling in September. You can find the full schedule and the descriptions of all the clinics at my website, theclickercenter.com. So do check them out. And I know many of you are feeling tired of Zoom. You want in-person lessons. But the virus is still making travel problematic. And, and I will tell you that these virtual clinics have been phenomenal. When you sign up with a horse spot, you get to work your horse in your home environment. And that takes away what I hear so often at clinics. He never does this at home. All the stress of traveling with a horse and having him in an environment where he's not comfortable, he's not familiar, all of that is taken away. And we can train as clicker training should be done. We can train in environments where the horse is comfortable and can be successful. The format also lets us focus in on details that really make a difference. And, and the beauty of it is, because we're using video, we can look at something over and over and over again until you see what we're talking about and you really understand what it is that you're looking at. So the sessions include presentations, discussions, video analysis, and we also include Feldenkrais lessons. So you aren't just passively watching the screen and you aren't sitting at the computer for the whole session. These clinics let you be as interactive as you want to be. If you want to sit quietly and just listen to the questions other people are raising, that's fine. If you want to jump in with your own questions, that's absolutely uh, encouraged. So these clinics are very much an experience, the experience that you make them. And I will tell you that the changes I see in horses and handlers as we go through the, the clinics and 
and I have people who've signed up for multiple clinics, so I get to watch them progress over the course of several months. What I'm seeing is that this virtual format really works. It's a good way to learn. So take a look at the events section in my website and come join me for a clinic. And in the meantime, stay safe and have fun with your horses. <laughs>